I don't think there's any uh, greater need that we sense that we have in life than to find some way to be uh, capable, uh, confident, adequate people. That's a longing that, uh, that all of us have in our hearts. We want to be people who are poised under pressure, uh, who can handle uh, stress without uh, caving in, uh, can be people who can <clears throat> endure uh, setback and adversity and hold our heads high and walk tall and uh, not be devastated by these, uh, by these setbacks. There isn't any greater hunger that we have than to feel like we are fit and adequate and capable for anything that life can, can throw at us and capable of being the sort of people that we want to be, adequate and, uh, and capable to be the sort of men and women that we long to be in our own hearts. Uh, now, Paul was like that. He was a man who had um, suffered tremendous setback and adversity. And uh, yet, everywhere we see him, we see a, a quiet sense of poise and uh, confidence, uh, despite the surface uh, discouragement and the, uh, the surface disappointment, that deep down, there was a kind of an abiding, uh, concrete sense of confidence and adequacy for life that Paul possessed. And it wasn't because life was easy for him. He tells us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in just another chapter, that... Uh, he was often afflicted in every way, he says, that there were, uh, that a rule for his life was to be under pressure and to be in stressful circumstances. All the time, he says, that's the way we live. He also says we are often perplexed. Paul admitted that there were many times in his life where he was very confused and bewildered, simply did not know what to do or which way to turn. And other times when he felt very lonely and isolated because of his stand for the faith. And still other times when he says he was struck down. And I think he's referring there to those times in life when, when all the props were just pulled right out from under him. And uh, he suffered uh, twists and turns of uh, fortune that uh, would have devastated a normal individual. And yet Paul had found some way to... Uh, handle all of those pressures in life with a uh, sense of calm and a sense of poise. And uh, he had discovered a sense of adequacy for all of these. And in the passage we want to look at uh, together today in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe Paul explains for us that uh, secret that he had discovered. And this, I believe, is the most single important lesson that there is to learn in life. If you don't learn anything else from the Bible, please learn this. I don't think there is a single lesson that is more profound or more important for us as, as human beings to learn than the lesson that Paul is going to teach us in this passage this morning. Now, in verses 4 through 6, I just want to recapitulate a little bit what David covered last week as Paul starts into this section in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse uh, 4. Paul says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit. So right away, Paul contrasts for us two possible sources of adequacy. There are two sources you can turn to for this sense of competency or sufficiency for life. And the first one is self. 
That's the first place we could look, is to ourselves. Now, this is how we all grow up, see? This is uh, why this is such an unnatural thing for us to learn. The lesson that Paul wants to describe to us here is that all of us grow up from the cradle upwards depending upon ourselves and looking to ourselves for the capacity to handle life. And uh, even in... uh, even in very innocent ways, this message is communicated to us. So we can't help but uh, imbibe the spirit of self-dependence. I remember teaching a uh, Sunday school class once in a, in a kindergarten uh, schoolroom. And on the uh, wall all around the room were pictures of kids doing uh, various things, kicking soccer balls and climbing ropes and drawing pictures and this sort of thing. And the caption under each one of those pictures was, I can do it. And what's that teaching a little uh, six-year-old? That he is sufficient and capable for life. If you uh, ever read your children the story about the little red engine, what does he say as he puffs up the hill? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. So again, right at the very earliest age of life, we are taught that if we need sufficiency or capacity for life, the place to find it is from ourselves. That you have, the the world's motto is that you've got what it takes. That's the philosophy and the guiding principle of people who live in the world. And that's the way all of us grow up. And we'll see in just a minute that many of us live our Christian lives under the same uh, principle. That you've got what it takes. If you read American history, you see that that the men that are held up to us as examples are rugged individualists. Men who needed nobody, who needed nothing, needed no assistance, who carved out an oasis in the desert purely by their own hard work and, and self-sufficiency. So all around us as we grow up, particularly in our culture, this lesson is just drummed into us that you've got what it takes. Now Paul says that uh, there is nothing about us that makes us adequate for life. In other words, Paul offhand rejects that approach to life entirely. He said it is not that we are adequate or sufficient or capable or fit or qualified in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Any capacity to handle life. Paul says none of that comes from ourselves. Now we'll look in just a minute at why that's such a destructive uh, way to live, to live in self-dependence. And... uh, But I think, first of all, we need to look at the positive solution that Paul gives us. Uh, Those of you that were here when Ray Steadman uh, spoke, remember an illustration he used, which I thought beautifully describes what what life is like for a Christian living under this basis of self-dependence. And many of us do. I know for many years in my life I lived on this this basis of my Christian life, sort of a try-harder philosophy of the Christian life, that if something went wrong with my Christian life, then the solution was for me to try harder, just to grit my teeth and buckle up and hit it again harder next time and resolve by my own determination and willpower that that I was going to become the sort of man that I wanted to be and to depend on my own resources of intellect or education or personality or uh, wit or things like this, things that we find in ourselves to handle uh, life and to be the sort of uh, mature, poised man that I wanted to be. Now, uh, the illustration that Ray uses is that of a man who goes down to a showroom, buys a beautiful, brand new car. You know, takes uh, the uh, 
pitch man for Bob Allen seriously and tows down his old car and picks up a brand new, shiny 1985, uh, brand spanking new model car. And so uh, he gets behind that uh, car and pushes it all the way home and pushes it into his driveway. And he's a little winded by this time, but he's really excited about this new car that he's got. And so he calls his family out of the house and they all hop in the car and he gets his wife seated there in the passenger seat and the kids in the back. And then he goes around behind the car and starts to push it down the street, see? And stops at every one of his neighbors and shows off his new car. See what a beautiful new car I've got here. It's really a beautiful car. You ought to ride it at the upholstery and the AM, FM radio and auto reverse on the cassette deck. And it's really a slick piece of uh, machinery. So it's a little, uh, it's a bit of hard work, but it's a beautiful car. And by the time he's made one circuit around the block, he's just exhausted. He's totally worn out. His family's enjoyed the ride, but he is just worn out. Okay? <laughs> so he says, a neighbor says, you know, I, I've been appreciating what you've been doing. And I really admire that new car you've got. But I notice that you get a little uh, winded uh, uh, driving your family around it. And I said, yeah, well, I really do. Well, listen, I want you to, to come to our church next week because all next week we are going to have a special speaker who is going to spend the entire week telling us how to push cars. Now, on Monday, he's going to tell us how to use the right shoulder to get in there and push that car. And then on Tuesday, about the left shoulder. And then Wednesday, we're going to work on footwork, how to get your hands on that rear bumper and kind of shoes to wear to get the maximum amount of traction. And then on Friday, we're going to have a big pep rally where we're all going to come in and we're going to make a commitment to push our cars uh, farther than we ever have pushed them before. Right? Well, that's, uh, that's the self-adequacy approach to the uh, Christian life. Okay? And what that man needs to understand and to learn, and this is what David pointed out last week in his airplane illustration, remember that? Is that there is a, there's a power plant in that uh, automobile that is adequate for every demand that's going to be made on that automobile. And all he needs to do is learn how to turn on that key to cause that power plant to come to life. He steers and he brakes accelerates, but the power is supplied by another source. Now, that's what Paul says he, is, he had learned in verse uh, 5. The end of verse 5, he says, Our adequacy, our sufficiency for every demand of life is something which comes entirely from God. The total source of our sufficiency for life finds its source in God. That uh, his uh, approach to life is that everything comes from God and nothing from me. That Paul's motto for life was, you don't have what it takes, but God does. <clears throat> I have a number of uh, gloves that uh, lay around my garage. And those gloves are perfectly uh, useless. If I went out into the, uh, if I had a, the leaves to rake and I went out into my garage and I ordered those gloves to pick up a rake and go out and, and uh, rake up the leaves in my lawn, uh, nothing would happen. They have no power to operate. Say. But as soon as I slip my hand into those gloves, then they're capable of all sorts of very useful things. Now that's, a, in a way, the way Paul pictured his spiritual life, that what God had done is, is to slip his life into Paul's and clothe himself with Paul's thinking and Paul's feeling and uh, Paul's willing and act it out in Paul's circumstances the very life of God himself. And that's the great secret that Paul had learned wasn't anything about him that made him uh, special or able to do the things that he did. I uh, came across this description of um, 
Paul, the only eyewitness description that's come down to us of what he looked like. And as you, uh, as you read this, try to picture this man as uh, the man who changed Western civilization. This is how he was described. A man small in size, with meeting eyebrows, so big bushy eyebrows that met right in the middle, with a rather large nose, bald-headed and bow-legged. Okay? Now this is not a man that you use to sell uh, shampoo, let alone uh, change the course of human civilization. Okay? And yet Paul was a man that God had used to change the life of every one of us in this room. Easily the most influential man, single influential man, that's, uh, that's ever lived. You know, even Jesus said that my disciples who come after me will do greater works than I did. And Paul was an example of that. By the power of Christ, he did greater things. His influence spread even wider than the influence of Jesus in his own lifetime. And Paul explains that the reason for that is uh, that God himself was active in me. There's nothing about me. There's absolutely nothing about me, my education, my background, my training, my willpower, my personality. There is nothing about me that explains the sort of impact that I have been able to have on the lives of other people. My sufficiency, he says, is entirely from God. Remember the story about the burning bush in uh, Exodus where Moses saw this uh, just little uh, sagebrush just uh, uh, consumed in flame. And he, tur- he was such a marvelous sight that he turned aside to, to look at it. And Ian Thomas makes the point that, uh, that any old bush in that desert would have done. Because there wasn't anything special about the bush. It was the God who was present within the bush that made it flame. And that's what Paul is saying. Nothing special about me. The only thing that makes me unique and able to impact others and live out a life of poise under pressure is that God himself has taken up residence in me and is living out his life and living out his character in me. remember uh, reading a story about D.L. Moody when he went to uh, England and visited campuses like Oxford and Cambridge and preached the gospel in these... Uh, bastions of higher learning and turned these places upside down for Christ. Students by the hundreds were uh, becoming believers and turning their lives over to Christ. And D.L. Moody was an uneducated shoe salesman. Could not even speak proper English. Now you can't imagine a worse combination of assets for a man to go into Oxford and have any sort of success. The last man in the world that you'd pick for that sort of mission. But he went in there and profoundly impacted those campuses for Christ. And one of the uh, the deans there at Oxford went up to Moody at one point and said, um, Mr. Moody, I just want you to know that I'm convinced that everything that's taking place here is entirely from God because I can see no connection between you and what is happening here. <laughs> now, we would have said the same thing about Paul. We could see no connection between that little bow-legged, bald-headed, beak-nosed man and the profound influence that he's had on the people around him. And Paul says, that's, that's fine, because that's a great lesson I've learned. It really does not depend on me. I don't have to be slick and highly educated and well-trained and have an outgoing personality in order to, be, uh, to influence people and in order to have the poise and maturity I need in life. This is a great lesson that he'd learned. I uh, have often had people, when I've shared the gospel with me, uh, reject my offer of the gospel because they claim they do not, uh, that Christianity is a crutch. Have you ever had anyone 
tell you that? And I always respond by telling them that I feel the only problem with that uh, metaphor is that it's too weak. That what the scripture teaches us about life is not that we are injured and in need of crutches, but that we are dead and in need of resurrection. That a better metaphor for what, what Christ supplies is that of an iron lung. It's not just here to help us hobble around, but to give us a new a source of life and to be our very sustaining strength and power and breath for life. And that's the great lesson that Paul had learned. Now, Paul contrasts this. He calls this concept of everything coming from God and nothing from me, he calls it the new covenant and contrasts it with the old covenant. And the old covenant, clearly in his mind, is identified with the Ten Commandments. He refers to it as letters engraved in stones. And I want to look at that in uh, just a minute. But we must not think that because this is called the new covenant, that somehow it's something absolutely brand new in human experience. There are two Greek words for new One means new in point of time. Another means new in the sense of fresh or vital. And that's the word for new that Paul uses to describe the new covenant, something which is fresh and vital. But these two options of self-adequacy versus God-adequacy have been the two options that man has had right from the dawn of creation. When Adam was created and placed in the garden, He lived on the basis of God-adequacy, depending totally upon God for everything. And then Adam was the one who instituted the old covenant, or the covenant of self-dependence, when he and Eve chose to choose their own path to God-likeness. Rather than taking the provision of God for that, they stepped out of self-dependence and chose their own route. But these two options have coexisted from from the time that man was created. And every man alive has had the options of living on either the basis of self-dependence or God-dependence. I want to illustrate this to you from the Old Testament. If you turn to Genesis 17, those of you that have one, an Old Testament with you. Put one finger in Genesis 17 and one finger in Exodus 20. Because I want you to see that this distinction that Paul draws between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is rooted in the beginnings of, uh, of human history. And I believe that Genesis 17 contains one of the earliest statements of what we would call the New Covenant. And Exodus 20, which is the record of the Ten Commandments, contains one of the earliest records of what Paul calls the Old Covenant. In fact, he identifies the Old Covenant with the Ten Commandments. Now, I just want to read verses 1 through 8 out of Genesis 17. And I want you to look for two little words that keep reappearing, almost like a hammer striking a gong. See if you can pick them out. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you, and I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
Now, what's the two words that keep occurring as a refrain in those eight verses? Little words, I will, right? God says repeatedly, uh, time and time again to Abraham, I will make you the father of nations, and I will be your God. I will be everything you need. Now, turn to Exodus 20 and see if you can pick out the uh, two key operative words in the Old Covenant. Uh, Start in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Verse 5. You shall not worship them. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, Verse 10. You shall not do any work. Uh, Verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and so forth. See the contrast there? What is the appeal in the Old Covenant? Well, the two basic words of the Old Covenant are thou shalt. Now that, in a nutshell, is the difference between what Paul calls the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is God saying to us, Thou shalt. The New Covenant is saying to us, is God saying to us, I will. I will be everything that you need in life. Now, Paul is so anxious for us to understand the difference between these two covenants that he contrasts them in verses 7 through 11 so that we'll be able to recognize when we are living on the basis of the old covenant of self-dependence and when we are living on the basis of the new covenant or God-dependence. And these contrasts will help us to recognize those times in life when we've slipped back into a lifestyle of the old covenant or self-dependence. End of verse 6, reading through verse 11. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed what had glory, in this case, has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. There are four contrasts I'd like to draw your attention to, which help us to identify the difference between these two covenants in practice, in action. Paul contrasts the sort of effects that they produce in life. If you live on the basis of self-dependence, Paul says, there are certain effects that you will be able to observe in life. If you live on the basis of the new covenant, everything coming from God and nothing from you, you likewise will see certain effects or results in your life. The first contrast, he says, is that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, simply put, what Paul says is that the Ten Commandments will kill you. If you try to live life as a believer, on the basis of the Ten Commandments, it'll kill you every time. Because the appeal of the Ten Commandments is to self-adequacy. Thou shalt, thou shalt, over and over again. Paul says that'll kill you. It'll produce death in life. Now, in the Scriptures, death is identified with all those things that, uh, that make life distasteful to us. Uh, boredom and frustration and disappointment and discouragement and depression. If you set out to do your best to live life for God, depending on your own resources, uh, aiming with all the sincerity of your heart, 
to be somebody who obeys the Ten Commandments, your inevitable experience in life will be boredom and frustration and disappointment and emptiness. But on the other hand, Paul says, if your basic approach to life is to recognize that everything comes from God, then what you will experience in life for what the Scripture calls life, you will experience joy and optimism and enthusiasm and a confidence in life and a peace and a love for people and a gentleness about life and a self-control, a new resource to handle bad habits and uh, plaguing sins. And that's the difference. The letter will kill. Self-adequacy will kill you. But the new covenant will produce life. The spirit produces life. I've often thought that this is amply illustrated just in human history. Every major technological breakthrough seems to offer to us as humans new uh, life and hope uh, for the future. But uh, every one of these, because they represent man's best efforts to cope with life, eventually result in death, physical death. When the uh, first instance of nuclear fission took place, when the atom, the secrets of the atom were penetrated in this tremendous the uh, secret of the universe was unlocked, and these great reserves and resources of power were released, seemed to offer almost unlimited potential uh, to meet the power and the, the uh, electricity demands of human civilization. But what's happened instead? Instead of that being the thing that we think of when we think of nuclear power, the first thing that comes to our mind is that using this same principle, we have now developed... Uh, Weapons which threaten the existence of the entire planet. When the automobile was created, it seemed to offer new, as solved so many problems in human life of transportation and mobility and shorten the distance between places and enable us to accomplish far more. And yet, uh, automobiles are the greatest source of pollution in our uh, culture and are an actual threat to, uh, to our health. And if something isn't done about it, the problem's going to get worse and we're all going to choke to death on the fumes from our own automobiles. And DDT, when it was created, seemed to offer the first uh, insect-free insect uh, vegetables and fruits. seemed to solve a major problem, but eventually most of it had to be banned because it was poisoning our rivers and streams and our food. Now, Paul says that's the way it always works. If you depend on, your, on human adequacy and resources, it will always produce death in life. When I was... Uh, an intern back at Peninsula Bible Church, I used to play golf with uh, Ray Steadman quite uh, regularly. And uh, one of the things that uh, was characteristic of me at that time was a bad temper. Uh, I'm not outgrown that completely, but I used to be very, uh, uh, get very angry on the golf course when I'd make a, a poor shot or usually a string of them. And uh, I'd start to pout and I'd sulk and I'd be kind of bad company for the rest of the round. And uh, one day I asked, uh, we were having lunch after we played golf, I just asked him for sort of an evaluation. What, you know, how, how do you size me up? Where do, where do I need to grow? And so forth. And he made a very perceptive comment to me. He said that uh, the fact that you get angry when you uh, make a bad shot on the golf course tells me that you have not really learned to live on the basis of the new covenant. You get upset with yourself because you're still expecting something from yourself. You're expecting some adequacy or capacity from yourself. And then when you don't meet your own expectations, you get angry and you sulk and you pout. 
That's very perceptive, see? Because if you live on the basis of self-adequacy, it'll produce death and anger and depression and discouragement and, and, uh, and temper tantrums are death in the Scripture. And if you're looking to yourself, then inevitably you'll let yourself down and experience these things. Now, the second contrast Paul draws in this passage is that the Old Covenant is inscribed in stones, but the New Covenant is inscribed in hearts. That is, one mark of the Old Covenant is that it's preoccupied with things which are external rather than things which are internal. It is preoccupied with the way things look rather than the way things are. This is one of the reasons, because so much of, uh, so much of, so many Christians today and so many churches operate on the basis of the Old Covenant, this is the reason that so many people out there identify Christianity with what I'd call a negative righteousness, a list of all the things that Christians do not do. And it's amazing how many people have that perception of Christianity, that what makes a man a Christian is all of the things that he does not do, such as drink and smoke and go to certain movies and so forth. And a list of the dirty dozen that you must abstain from varies from one church to another, but it's always a mark of the presence of the Old Covenant lifestyle. It's preoccupation with certain external standards of behavior as the mark of Christianity. Uh, I know of one uh, high school senior who was applying to a school, and it was a, a Christian school, conservative Christian school. And on the application was a place where he was to pledge for the next four years that he would not use alcohol or, or uh, tobacco. He wouldn't uh, touch either alcohol or tobacco. And uh, this man went to his pastor and said, should I, should I sign this? Should I, should I agree to this for the next uh, four years? And his uh, pastor cast him and said, well, yes, I think you should sign it, but I think what you ought to add is in the little addendum, you know, so that it would read something like this. I agree to abstain from tobacco and intoxicating beverages for the next four years, but I reserve the right to be selfish, uh, insensitive, angry, impatient with my roommates, upset with the academic dean for decisions he makes, and so forth. Right? And, uh, and I thought that was a very insightful response uh, because there is a preoccupation there, see, with the externals rather than the things that really count in the kingdom of God. And uh, when I went to PBC back in the early 70s, it was right in the middle of the Jesus movement, and we had uh, many college students who began coming to PBC, and many of them, to the shock of some of the older uh, staid uh, members of the church, came without shoes and with long, uh, straggly hair. Some of them would wear sandals, but many of them would come barefoot. And some of the older people got very upset about this and went to the leadership and said, look, we've got to do something about this. We've got people who aren't wearing shoes in our church service. And so the leadership said, well, this is, an, this is a problem that we need to resolve. And what I'd like you to do is go back to your scriptures and see if you can find anywhere in the Bible where it says that you have to wear shoes to church. And then you come back and show us, and then we'll take appropriate action. So they hunted all through their Bibles, and they couldn't find anything that said you had to wear shoes to church. And so we went on allowing these uh, shoeless uh, children to attend our worship services. But see, that's the difference. The Old Covenant is concerned about things rather than people, and appearance rather than reality. And any time we catch ourselves, see, more concerned with these external standards than the internal righteousness and character. That's a sign that we're back under the Old Covenant. The third contrast is in verse 9, where he contrasts the Old Covenant as a ministry of condemnation and describes the New Covenant as a ministry of righteousness. 
that the Old Covenant inevitably produces guilt in life, whereas the New Covenant produces a constant sense of forgiveness. Now, many of us, and I speak from experience on this, have lived life much of the time with this vague sense of uneasiness that God is displeased with me, that he is unhappy with me. And there's this vague sense that uh, although I'm doing my best, it's not really cutting muster with God, that he is sort of tolerating me or putting up with me. And that's because we know that we are not living up to our own standards. And we know that, and we know God knows that. So it produces in us this lingering, ongoing sense of guilt. Now, Paul says that's a mark of self-adequacy. If you're looking for something from yourself, you inevitably will be disappointed and you'll feel guilty about that. But if you've come to the conclusion that there's no adequacy in yourself, that God knows that you're sinful and wicked and degenerate and isn't surprised when you act like that and doesn't throw up his hands and say, what am I going to do with that, uh, that individual? But instead that God has already found a way under the provisions of the new covenant to extend to you full forgiveness and restore you immediately to fellowship with him if your repentance is genuine. Uh, Then you uh, feel guilty when you sin, and we ought to. But once we have confessed it with a heart which is genuinely sorry for the sin, relationship is restored and the cloud of guilt dissipates. It's gone because it's replaced with this ongoing sense of Forgiveness. This is the third contrast that, that Paul draws. Now, the fourth contrast he, des- he describes is that the glory of the old covenant fades, but the glory of the new covenant remains. So the third contrast is that the old covenant of self-dependence is identified with a fading glory in life, whereas the new covenant is identified with an abiding glory. And he talks about this curious incident uh, in Moses' life that's recorded in Exodus 34 where Moses went up to Mount Sinai to meet with God and God spoke to him. Moses came down the mountain and spoke the words to the people that God had spoken to him. And what Moses didn't realize when he came down from Mount Sinai that his uh, face was glowing so brightly that it frightened the people. And they hit the deck. They went down on their faces because they were frightened by this. They'd never seen anybody look like this before. And so they pleaded with Moses to put a veil over his face so that the glory that was emanating from his face wouldn't frighten them. And so so Moses did. For the benefit of the people, he put this veil uh, over his face. Now what Paul goes on to point out is that that glory faded. In other words, the old covenant came with the splendor and with this glory, but it rapidly began uh, to fade. And eventually, the glow on Moses' face was gone, and he was just back to being plain old Moses, with no glory about him at all. Now, Paul says that's a symbol of the way life works under the Old Covenant. That if you are depending upon yourself, you will discover that that uh, comes with a great sense of glory. One of the perfect illustrations of this, I think, is New Year's resolutions. Now, you say on December 31st, I will exercise three times a week starting on January 1st, and I will not have seconds at dinner, and I will get up at 6 in the morning and read my Bible every day, and I will set aside 15 minutes a day to pray. Okay? Now, how do you feel when you do that? Well, there's a tremendous sense that you're flushed with hope 
and enthusiasm. You're turning the corner. You're getting control of your life. You're starting to take charge of things. Okay? And the first two or three days, everything may go very well. And you're, you're filled with this sense of, of accomplishment and having finally made progress in these, in these areas. But by the fourth day, the alarm goes off at six and you could care less. And uh, you say to yourself, well, just this once. I'll let it go just this once and I'll make up for it tomorrow by getting up at 5.30 and so forth. And by the end of the week, the whole plan is in shambles. See what I'm saying? Well, Paul says that's the way the old covenant works. It comes with this great sense of glory. And that's what's deceptive about it. See, that's why we're, that's why we're inclined to go back to the same solutions over and over again. That's why we're inclined to think that the solution to these problems is a new resolution. A new list of things that I'm going to accomplish in 1985. But Paul says every time you try that, every time you do that, the glory will fade. And you wind up disappointed and disillusioned and unhappy with yourself. But in contrast, he says, if your basic approach to life is that everything comes from God and nothing from me, then what that produces in your life is an ever-increasing glory which never fades. Now, it's not nearly as spectacular. You know, if you look at the way the Old Covenant came, fire and thunder and lightning and the earth shaking, you know, an awesome sort of beginning... Look at the way the New Covenant was instituted, you know, with a, in, a, in an upper room and a quiet, uh, unnoticed supper for Jesus and, and a few close friends. Quiet, unspectacular, unimpressive. But Paul says if you live on that basis, what it will begin to produce in your life is a splendor of character and life, the glory of which begins to grow rather than fade. It increases rather than fades, and it abides. It never diminishes. It never fades. And Paul says that's a tremendous hope if we live on the basis of the New Covenant. doesn't seem very spectacular. doesn't seem very flashy. There's no big charts and thermometers and, and media blitzes that announce this sort of thing. comes very quietly and works steadily in the human heart to produce an ever-increasing glory. So those are the four contrasts that he draws. The uh, self-adequacy will kill you, whereas the New Covenant produces life. The Old Covenant is concerned with externals. The New Covenant with things which are internal. The Old Covenant produces guilt. The New Covenant forgiveness. The Old Covenant produces a fading glory, whereas the New Covenant produces an abiding glory. Before we go into the last section quickly, let me give you a couple of ways to practically understand, I think, the way this works. Uh, I think all of us have had the experience of going to a party or some kind of social function or showing up at a growth group for the first time or something like that, and there's a room full of strange people that you've never seen before. Now, every one of us in this room will feel a sense of panic in that circumstance and feel uneasy. And every one of us, without exception, will want to turn and run or get out of there as fast as we can. Now, what we need in that circumstance is some adequacy, right, to handle that fear, to overcome that. Well, now, the, the Old Covenant says, okay, you just give yourself a pep talk. Say, okay, uh, you, you can do it. If you just take a step and open your mouth and just go out there and, and, and do it and think of a funny story to tell or something like that, okay, and give yourself a little pep talk to do it. But the New Covenant says you walk in that door and say, Lord, I feel totally inadequate for this. I feel fearful. I feel ill at ease. I don't feel comfortable here. And I need you to be my adequacy for this uh, next hour, this next hour and a half. And then see what happens. 
Trust him. He's adequate. He's promised he'd come through. See what happens. Now, another way to help you get a focus on this is to look at the way, the attitude that you bring to each day. I think there's two ways that we can approach each day. Tomorrow morning, you're in the shower. You're thinking about what you have to do this coming day. The challenge is before you. Now, the old covenant approach to each day is to say to yourself, okay, um, I am not going to let my boss get under my skin today. Uh, I am determined not to let that fellow employee uh, uh, get me peeved at him today. Uh, I am determined to be, be kind to my wife when she complains about the noise in the car. And I am I'm, I'm determined not to lose my temper with my children and, and not yell at them. I did it yesterday. I am not going to do it today. Now that is the old covenant. Now, what Paul says, if you start life that way, if you start tomorrow that way, what you're going to experience by tomorrow night at dinner is you're going to experience death, you will experience guilt, uh, and you will experience a fading glory. All of your best intentions will lie in ruins around your feet. Now, the New Covenant approach to life says, same time you're sitting in the shower, you say to yourself, Lord, I am not adequate for any of the demands that life is going to make on me this day. You are my Savior, you are my Deliverer, you are my Lord. If you do not deliver me and save me and sustain me this day, I will say things and do things that I will regret. So please be my Savior this day. And then as the day progresses and you hit one challenge, then the prayer you pray is, Lord, I need your sufficiency right now. And you call on Him and cling to Him for whatever you need for that moment. Last week, I was getting my daughter ready for her bath, and she is two and a half year old. Was her normal uh, cooperative self, and uh, just delighting to do what her father wanted her to do. And uh, I found myself becoming very impatient with her, and I could feel that my temper rising. And I said, "Lord, uh, I need you right now to relate to my daughter. I need you. If you if you don't deliver me, if you don't act as my savior in this circumstance, I'm going to say something or do something that I'm going to regret. Please be what I need at this moment." And He enabled me to calm down and to uh, to handle her uh, with with poise and with calmness instead of flying off the handle. Well, that's the kind of thing that Paul is uh, is talking about. Now you have to want what he delivers. Let me make that. I remember uh, David Melhoff telling me about their daughter, Rachel. And uh, uh, their, uh, Rachel's grandfather had a saying to use in circumstances where you were under pressure to, to indicate that the Lord was adequate for this and would enable you to overcome. And that was a little phrase, get the victory. And that was an appeal to trust God for whatever you needed in that moment. And so... Um, uh, David and Claudia would use this with their children on occasion, you know, instructing them, appealing to them to get uh, the victory, you know, trust God to, to help you. And so one morning, Rachel came into the breakfast table, and she was in a real cranky mood and wasn't acting very pleasing. And so uh, David or Claudia, one of them said, Okay, now, Rachel, get the victory. Get the victory, Rachel. And she crossed her arms and looked up at him and said, Don't want the victory. Yeah. <laughs> So, if you don't want it, you can't expect God to produce it. And you may be in a case where you really, you may be in a situation where you really don't want the righteousness that God intends to supply. You sort of enjoy that sin, and you want to, uh, 
and you, you want you want to wallow in it for a bit. You know, it's like Augustine uh, used to pray for years. He said, "Lord, make me chaste," and he he, he realized. A, a number of years later, that what he'd actually been praying all that time is, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Right? And so we, so we may need to ask God to make us, make us willing and desirous of what he wants. See, We may have to back up there, but see, we don't even get that desire by making up our mind to want it the next time. We say, Lord, I'm not even adequate in myself to desire your righteousness in that circumstance. I need you even for that. But he is our only uh, Savior, our only source of hope. Now quickly, in verses 12 through 18, Paul details three uh, great results in life if we choose to live under the new covenant. The first one in verses 12 through 16 is a sense of transparency. Having therefore such a hope, that is the hope that God will produce in us an abiding glory, We use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Now the word boldness here, I think, if you look, uh, just use a concordance to see some of the other ways it's used in the New Testament, it also means plainness or frankness of speech and honesty of speech. And I think that's Paul's point here. Unlike Moses, we use great honesty or transparency in our speech. He's not so much talking about his courage or boldness as about his honesty in what he says. Now, notice what he says about Moses is that Moses put this veil over his face so that the Israelites could not see the end of what was fading away. In other words, what happened? Well, the glow on Moses' face faded as time progressed... And he knew it, but what did he do with the veil? Did he take it off when he no longer needed it? No, he didn't. He kept that hood over his head. Well, why would he do that? Well, I think he kind of liked the way people looked at him when he came into the donut shop with this hood over his head. You know, ooh, there's Moses. He's been with God and his face is glowing. You ought to see what his face looks like without that veil. Now, Moses liked that, see? So he covered up, he veiled from men the fadingness of the glory about him so that they would still think that he had the bright, shining splendor on his face. Now, when we live under the basis of the Old Covenant, we do exactly the same thing. See, the pressure is on us to perform. And so we want people to think that we are performing, that we're producing, that we have our act together. And so we shield from them our weaknesses and our shortcomings and our failures and our hurts and our disappointments. Because we don't want them to think that we do not have our act together. So we're in the pits, and somebody calls up and says, How you doing? I says, we're, I'm great. You know, i got some ups and downs, but I'm doing great. You know, God's faithful and, and so forth. And we just cover over those weaknesses. Now, if you're living on the basis of the Old Covenant, your lifestyle is going to be characterized by that. This unwillingness to admit even to yourself uh, your weakness and your inadequacy. But Paul says we're not like that. You know, we've come to the conclusion that we're inadequate for life, and so we have no hesitation in honestly, openly admitting that to anyone who asks. And even in this letter, I think Paul is trying to explain why have we been so honest with you about our own weakness in this very letter. Chapter 1, Paul talked about how, he, how depressed he was in Ephesus, so depressed he even thought of taking his own life. Well, you know, pastors aren't supposed to think about taking their own lives, so that's the typical thing you'd, you'd cover over. 
He says in chapter 2 that we passed up an open door for the ministry. The Lord opened a wide door for service, and we had to pass it up because we were so uptight. And this was the guy that wrote Philippians 4, 6, you know, be anxious for nothing. And even Paul in that circumstance uh, could not live on that, on that principle. He admitted he passed up a door for service because of his own anxiety. Well, pastors aren't supposed to do that. They're supposed to take every opportunity that comes their way. But Paul says, we have no hesitation about admitting to you these times of weakness because we've already come to the conclusion that we are inadequate. When uh, David Roper one morning shared in a, in a morning sermon about a fight that he'd had with his wife, a lady came up to him afterwards and said, uh, you know, Pastor Roper, I just want you to know that I'm leaving your church. And, uh, and the reason I'm leaving is that I, I, I refuse to go to a church where the pastor fights with his wife. Because pastors are supposed to be an example. They're not supposed to do that sort of thing. So now this woman is going to a church where the pastor fights with his wife but won't tell anybody. They ask. <laughs> That's the only difference. Right? Right? But this is, see, if we understand our own inadequacy for life, this is what frees us up in, in the women's Bible studies and in our growth groups and with close friends to just honestly admit when we struggle and when we hurt and when we do not have our act together. Because we're not under any illusions about how capable we are uh, for life. This is why we get defensive, by the way. You know, uh, if you're a defensive type, you know, uh, and tend to excuse or justify yourself or defend yourself whenever anybody criticizes you or questions things you do. It's because you're depending on yourself. You have an image of yourself you're trying to maintain, which you know secretly isn't really uh, true, and you have to keep shoring it up by defensiveness. Now, the second, and he goes on in verses uh, 14 to 16, I won't read these, to say that the same veil remains over the uh, hearts of the Israelites today. When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil of pride is still in place. In other words, they still think that they can do it, and so they cover up their weaknesses so they can pretend that they're adequate for life. Now, the second great characteristic in verse 17 is liberty. Not only transparency, but liberty. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. I think what Paul means by this, if we understand the New Covenant, the pressure is off because the pressure is not on us to produce and to perform but it's entirely on God. He's the one that says to us, I will. It's a great deal of pressure under the Old Covenant. I was reading in the paper this week that in the BSU locker room, there's a saying that's posted in full view of everybody, which says, it is better to die at birth than fumble at the goal line. (laughs) Now that is pressure. But the glorious thing, see, about the new covenant is that there's liberty there because the pressure is off. It all depends on somebody else. Isn't that a tremendous feeling to go into some circumstance where it all depends on somebody else? What a glorious sense of freedom. Paul says that's our heritage under the new covenant. And then the third thing in verse 18, the third great result in life is transformation of character. We all... With unveiled face, that is, uh, before the Lord, just as Moses took the veil off his face before the Lord, so we live with an unveiled face, not only before men, but before God, with no pretense, no illusions about our adequacy, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
And Paul, I think, uses that imagery of a mirror because we do not at this stage see Jesus face to face. One day we will, but as Paul points out in in, uh, 2 Corinthians later, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's as if Jesus is on the other side of a screen and we're looking at a mirror and we can see his reflected image, but we don't see him directly. But we see his image uh, described for us in the scripture as a reflection. And he says, we are being transformed into the same image. Well, what image? The image of Christ. We're being transformed into a Christ-likeness. And notice the verb there. We are being transformed. That's present tense, right? That means this is a process which is ongoing. You know, we're not made like Jesus instantly. We can't be dipped in some kind of solution that turns us instantly into miniature Christ. This is a process. It takes time, and we must be patient with each other and, and God as he continues his work. And, and it's passive. You know, something is being done to us. We are being transformed. It's not some kind of self-improvement program, but it's a God-improvement program. And it's being transformed, that image, from glory to glory. That is, from one stage of glory, from one stage of brightness of character, to a greater stage, an ever-increasing glory in life as we trust God for total adequacy in life. Now, have we dispensed with the, uh, done away with the Ten Commandments? Kind of seems like we have, doesn't it? The Old Covenant fades, it kills, we've got to get rid of that bear. But I think what, the, what Paul's perspective is, well, let me illustrate it this way. There's two ways to get apples on an apple tree. You can go down to Buttrey's and buy a box of them and get yourself a blue gun and a stepladder and go find a barren tree somewhere and start gluing apples on trees. You get done, you'll have a tree with apples on it. Well, that's the old covenant. But the new covenant is to uh, uh, allow the natural life of that tree, see, to course through the, the trunk and course through the branches, and it will produce fruit. It will make us like Christ, and we will find to our surprise that we begin to be people who do instinctively, by nature, uh, as a byproduct, the things of the law. Not by trying to do the things of the law, but by trusting the God who works within us. Let's pray. Father, we do want to confess before you this morning that we are uh, inadequate for the demands of life, that there's nothing about us that provides a basis for sufficiency for the demands of life. We pray that you will... um, convince us of this where we need to be convinced. Lord, we're so often flushed with the sense of self-sufficiency, self-dependence, that uh, we need you to be good enough to us to sort of um, destroy our defenses and allow us to see ourselves for just the weak and frail and uh, helpless people that we really are. And Lord, we pray that as this week progresses, that even tomorrow or this afternoon, that you would teach us what it means to find our total sufficiency in you. And when the pressure is on to cling to you, trusting you to be the adequate, uh, all-sufficient one in life, we ask you to live out in us this uh, week uh, your life and demonstrate through us your total sufficiency for every demand of life. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.